So Money episode 469, Lovey Ajayi, blogger and author of I'm Judging You. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Are you ready to have a good laugh and maybe discover your new hero? Today, we have a guest who might deliver all of that. She is a blogging veteran, author, speaker, comedian, pop culture enthusiast. Lovey Ajayi is here. She's out with a brand new book that's getting a lot of praise. It's called I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. It's her first book. I have a feeling it's not going to be her last. The book has humorous essays that dissect our cultural obsessions and calls out bad behavior in our increasingly digital and connected lives. A little bit more about Lovey. She's the voice behind the very popular blog, awesomelylovey.com. There she covers all things pop culture. She has also a passion for social justice and shoes. Yeah, shoes. So in 2009, she co-founded the Red Pump Project to raise awareness about the impact of HIV AIDS on women and girls. Lovey also is a sought-after speaker. She speaks at conferences like the TEDx Columbia College Chicago, South by Southwest, and many others. She's met Oprah. She's met Shonda Rhimes. And now I'm honored to say I get to meet her at least voice to voice, for the next 30 minutes. And is there such a thing as having too much money? Hmm. Lovey and I debate this. She also shares why she thinks, and I do agree, that giving back should be an obligation, not an option. And you'll love this, the deleted pages from her new book that have to do with doing better with our money. I'm so sad they got deleted, but I'm happy she was able to share some of those insights with us on the show as an exclusive. Here we go. Here's Lovey Ajayi. Lovey Ajayi, welcome to So Money. Congrats on your new book. Thank you. Thank you. It's called I'm Judging You. I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. Yes. I'm judging you. Are you judging me? What are you? (laughs) (laughs) I am judging all of us always. Okay. (laughs) The the goal with the book, do you really think you're going to hopefully change some lives or are you just hoping to maybe get people to think a little differently about how their perspectives on things? Both. And also while they're reading it, I want them to laugh. So my book is a collection of essays on life, culture, social media, and fame. And I chose to call it, I'm judging you because I just feel like, we're all ridiculous mm-hmm. and we are, we can all do better. So that's why the cover of my book has a lollipop on it that is given epic side eye. Epic side eye. You know, with social media too, we're judging all the time, right? Yes. Um, yes. What do you mean by do better? Like in what ways? What do you focus on in the book? What are the areas where we should be looking at doing better? So my book has a broad range because of course on my blog, awesomelylovey.com, I cover all different topics and I didn't want my book to just focus on one thing. I wanted it to basically be a journey. So I go from talking about, you know how we all have that one friend who always makes the worst relationship decisions. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you have everything else together, but you always pick the worst partners. I go from that to talking about 
how we can all do better when it comes to race and when it comes to feminism and religion. I go from that to talking about how we are generation social media and how everybody is so obsessed with fame and how people use Facebook as like their own reality TV show. So it covers a wide range of topics and there's something for everybody here. And your work is really at the intersection of technology and humor and pop culture. How did you arrive at this very unique, I would say, environment? This really, you really cornered the market for yourself here. Well, I've been blogging for 13 years. So I was blogging back in college when I was just talking about tests I didn't study for and roommate problems. But when I graduated from college in 2003, I mean, 2006, I started a brand new blog, which is what is now awesomelylovey.com, where I was just talking about pop culture and whatever randomness I felt like talking about that day. So I didn't let my blog just have one niche. If my blog was to have a niche, it would just be a humor blog. But that means I cover all topics but it's always from this witty lens. And that's why my voice kind of got elevated because it was in its own lane. How do you start a blog in 2016? You know, 10 years ago, it was a less crowded space. Sometimes right. just being there was enough to get you noticed, but now it's so crowded. So how do you differ? If you were to give advice, and I'm sure you do, to people who want to build a community online and their passion is writing. So they don't want to do a podcast. They don't want to do a YouTube channel. They want to blog, which seems so antiquated now uh, because there's so many other ways to get out there. But so how do you actually do a blog and do it well in 2016? There's like something like 200 million blogs that exist. So starting a blog now means there's some other blog out there. There's already covering the topics you want to cover. But what what makes people stand out is their voice and basically what they are bringing to the table. So if me and somebody else cover the same topic, what makes mine stand out? Mine stands out because of how I approach it and how I'm authentically myself. So you really have to stand in your own voice and you shouldn't try to mimic somebody else's because I mean, what is the point? Anyone can just read whoever's voice you're mimicking. You might as well just come with your own angle, with your own ideas and Make it work. You know Adam Grant? He no. Is a, he's a Wharton professor. He's a prolific author. He recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. But you brought up the word authenticity. So I wanted to just see what you thought about this. So he wrote an op-ed that was like, don't be authentic. The only person that can really afford to be authentic is Oprah. And his point was – it was a very catchy title. His point was that sometimes you're, who you are is not appealing. <laughs> Right. You know, and so if you're somebody who is not funny or not, you know, that maybe you're great in person, but you're not great as a blogger, um, that that he was like, maybe it's about looking at other people and adopting some of those qualities that you admire and incorporate that into your voice that is otherwise flat or not exciting. And because uh, he worries that if all of us suddenly became authentic, some of us would fail at it. And it would be an unhappy ending. And of course, Brene Brown took that to task because <laughs> she's all about authenticity. So um, what do you think about that? I mean, what if you feel like you're not confident in your humor? You're not confident in your uh, in your prose and you want to be a, blo- a really great blogger. Should you try podcasting instead? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's many forms of creating content, but I completely disagree with Adam saying you might as well just be somebody else for success. That's ridiculous because here's the thing. You being somebody else still doesn't even guarantee you success. 
So you're working twice as hard to mimic somebody's voice Mm -hmm. and you're still not guaranteed their success. So you might as well just be yourself, make it slightly easier on yourself and see what happens. Yeah. Failure is part of it. Failure is totally part of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and everyone is not funny and I'm not saying everyone needs to be funny, Mm -hmm. be who you are. Cause if you, if I'm not funny, naturally my blog wouldn't be funny. So the only reason why my blog became a humor blog is because when I started writing and having this blog, I didn't, I didn't have a niche. I didn't consider it anything, but I noticed people started laughing at my words because I'm just naturally goofy. Mm. So when people read my, you know, people who know me in real life, read my blog and say this, I like, I hear your voice as I'm reading this. That is what lets me know I am standing in my own voice. So yes, if you're not a great writer and you are more of a better speaker, get a podcast, get a video blog, <laughs> do something because writing is not the only mm. way to create content online. Was there a point in your career as you were blogging and gaining an audience that you, you said, okay, I need to be a little bit more conscientious and, and strategic about my quote unquote brand? Um, so, and I also think this is where it pays off when you start blogging, you have zero expectations. When I started blogging, I didn't have any strategy or thoughts of brand. I was just myself. Like I was just strictly myself doing what I felt like doing. It was a hobby. So there was no pressure on me to be like, this has to blow. This has to make me all the money. And having no pressure actually ended up being the best thing because I was able to build an audience that was there because they loved my voice. I was able to write things without thinking, oh my God, what is the brand going to think? And I was able to create this platform that was, authentically me in that it was not a business. It was a hobby. And in that, it allowed me to be very sincere. Now I am more conscious of brand, but even then it's because I have a larger audience, but still I always have to ask myself, are you saying what you want? And do you mean it? Because I'm, I'm not crafting a voice that is based on expectations. I'm still, I'm still not trying to fall for that pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so me online is still authentically me in person. You know, um, the things I would say on my status are things I would say in a crowded room. So that's always been important. And I think that's been what's helped me be successful. That's interesting. That's a great thing to remember. Say what you would only say in a crowded room. Yep. When I do workshops, I always tell people, you know, and I, I when I especially when I talk to um, young adults and I talk to high schoolers and college students, I always say, whatever you post on social media, imagine that it would end up on a giant billboard in Times Square. If you don't want it to end up in a giant billboard in Times Square, (laughs) do not post it. If you govern yourself that way, you won't create, you won't have content that could possibly damage you in any way. Agreed. Agreed. One of your passions is technology. And my question is, how far is too far with technology these days. You know, there's so many platforms to voice and to engage right now. And in some ways that's fantastic, but I think um, in, in other ways it can backfire. It makes us lose touch with reality. So in your world, in your, in your, you know, if we're going to do better with technology, what would be some solution to that? Well, I'm a, I'm part of generation social media, but I'm also part of the bridge generation. So, you know, I'm 31. So I'm part of the generation that remembers before internet, when we still had to like go to the library to use a computer. But then I'm also the one who grew up high school and college 
um, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, all of that. So we're the ones who kind of have the most balance when it comes to using tech for everything and also kind of knowing when to stop. But I think where tech can become the snake that eats its own tail is when we use these tools as our end all be all. Um, so, you know, I've seen people who've made up and broken up on Facebook. I've seen people who've lost best friends mm. of 20 years because they had Facebook status beef, you know? So it's a matter of still understanding that these are tools. They're not the only way we're supposed to be communicating. So if I have a friend who I vehemently disagree with something they said on Facebook, I would rather either call them or text them and say, Hey, here's what I have a problem with, with what you just said. Cause if that is my friend, we shouldn't hash out conflict on a public platform. Right. Speaking of hashing out conflict on a public platform, <laughs> this is so unrelated to money and we'll get to money in a second, but you've written about this on your blog recently. It's we're recording this now. It's uh, late July. So maybe by the time it airs, it'll have resolved itself. Taylor Swift, Kanye West go. Oh my God. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm not a fan of either one of them. I want to be clear about that because I, for different reasons, but I kind of found some joy in Kim doing that to Taylor because Taylor has used this narrative of like Kanye trying to ruin her or like Kanye just being this big bad wolf on her but not taking accountability for some of the, what she's done to, she's also made money off this Kanye Taylor beef. So then for her to be caught on video, getting these lyrics served, that he yeah. did, getting served. Okay. Kim showed some receipts. I kind of enjoyed it a little bit. I did. And, um, for once I gave Kim a, a, a virtual high five. Yes. I don't agree with a lot of the things that she posts on Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> but this one was um, was very touche, I think. Uh, let's see what happens by the time your book comes out. I've heard that your book, I've heard that the grapevine, that your book is already getting so much acclaim. Um, people like Tina Fey, Oprah are, are, are big fans. How does it feel to kind of brush, have a little brush with celebrity? And I'm sure once the book is out, you're, I mean, I'm glad I, got, I have you now because I feel like once the book is out, you're going to be super busy and you won't have time for little people like me. So Amy Poehler actually has Amy my Poehler. Book. Okay. Tina doesn't have it yet. I'm crossing my fingers that I can get it to Tina. Um, oh man, the book, this is my first book. So this is like new territory for me. I don't know what to expect. And it's kind of like a, I feel like a, a fish out of water for once. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just, I think people are going to love it. I think people are going to love this book because I have gotten some really, really good feedback um, about it. I've gotten text messages from some people who've been reading it, being like, I should not read this in public because <laughs> I keep tackling. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, the best compliment. It is. Like my friend, Joe Morgan, uh, who wrote When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roast, she texted me and was like, I am on the C train dying. <laughs> so I, was I like, take the C train. Maybe the, I think I remember her. <laughs> oh my God. Death by Lovey's book. Death by Lovey's book. Yes. That, that would be the best compliment. So I am like really excited because I'm proud of what I've done here. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important, um, for, for this book to do well, because 
uh, women and people of color have to double prove ourselves when it yes. comes to publishing. And of course, every, every other everything. thing, everything. So this book, um, it's doing well will make it easier for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Congrats again. That's a huge accomplishment. All right. Let's talk about money. Do you talk about how we can do better with money in your book? <laughs> um, do I talk about what? You know what's funny? I actually end up eliminating a money chapter from my book at the last moment. No. I did. Well, tell I me did. everything that you eliminated now. <laughs> uh, what did I look? Okay. So there was going to be a chapter on money because, you know, so I, I gave a uh, commencement talk, uh, a high school graduation commencement talk about a month ago. And one of the things I made sure to tell them was, okay, you are an adult. What does that mean? It means all the good and bad. It means you're now responsible for yourself. But one thing you should always keep in mind when you start college is do not sign up for that credit card application just to get that free pizza or that free t-shirt. Right. Because many people have ruined their credits from free pizza credit cards. Or free vodka shots, free visors. Well, the good news now, hopefully many banks are complying, is that they cannot be on campus soliciting credit cards anymore. Um, And in fact, if you're under the age of 21, you have to either show proof of a job or that you have a co-signer in order to qualify for a credit card, which is great. I think when we were in college, it was a different situation. And then, you know, that little thing called the financial crisis happened. And Mm -hmm. then... um, the consumer uh, uh, CFPB, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, uh, decided to crack down on some of that marketing activity. But that said, I have heard of banks still cutting corners, and it does still happen. Wow! See, no one told us that. No yeah. one told us that. <laughs> Listen, I always tell like recent grads, I'm like, you want to open up a credit card. Maybe you should first check your credit report because you might already have one. And I did that. I, I I didn't even know I had like two credit cards when I got out of college. It was because the first week of college, I had signed up for some to get the free tchotchkes. And mm-hmm. then when they came in the mail, I maybe didn't open them or I, you know, whatever. I didn't really care. I didn't use them. But they're still open technically. So I said, just make sure that, you know, you're not opening up additional credit cards that you don't need. You might already have a few in your name because of... uh you know, some decisions you made in your freshman year. So now that, you know, you are authoring a book and I'm sure you have all these projects going on, how do you personally kind of, uh, how do you personally characterize your financial philosophy? Like what's your approach to money, Lovey? Do you have like a, an ideology around it? My approach to money, I think, um, I think money is use, useful up to a certain point, and after that, it becomes a detriment. So, so there is such a thing as too much money. There is. I do believe there is such a thing as too much money. I do. I think like I can't like I I don't for me I've I've never had a goal of being like I want to be a billionaire. That just feels like too much money to be responsible. It's a lot for. of work. It's a lot. Yeah. It's too much money, and there there comes a point where. You can only spend so much. You can only buy so many homes. You can only go on so many vacations until you're like, okay, so what else do I do with this $500 million that's left over? You could give it away. I mean, look at um, Warren Buffett and, and Bill Gates. I mean, they have foundations. They have the, um, they actually have their, uh, the oath that they're taking that when, uh, once they die, they're going to have half of their, more than half of their estate uh, go to philanthropic 
you know, purposes. And you obviously run the Red Pump Project. So maybe that's a reason to be a billionaire, to be able no, to give absolutely. back. I think, I think giving back in general is, should be an obligation, not an option. So yes, absolutely. If you are a billionaire, yes, give away a lot of that money because again, you can't take it with you and you can only spend so much on yourself after you've secured the futures of your, of your kids and their grandkids. What do you do with the rest of it? Give it something worthwhile. How is, what's that? (laughs) I said, but I'm far from that. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know what? The night is young. The night is young. (laughs) How did you learn about money growing up? Well, I mean, I, I don't assume that you learned a ton or learned little. I just would love to know what was your experience, uh, learning about money. If there was a pivotal memory that you had growing up that kind of shaped the way that you look at money today, given that you just said that there's a limit to how much you should really have. I don't think I had a moment of like, okay, this is what defines. I've always looked at money. I mean, money has, is a good motivator in that, you know, you needed to survive to keep your head above water. And I'm a fan of shoes. So, you know, I like to have some to be able to buy shoes and travel. But I've never been one of those people who's like number one drive is getting money. Your number one drive has been what then? No, uh, my number one. Well, my number one drive is freedom. Mm-hmm. Now, money comes with that. But I mean, freedom as in I just want to have enough money where I can um, live life on my own terms. And that's what I mean by freedom. So, you know, if that means I don't have to work 60 hours a week to pay all my bills, it means, yes, I want to do a vacation here and there but I don't think I need enough money to where I can run the world. Like that just feels like a lot. So yeah, for me, I just want freedom. That's my motivating factor. You say you don't want to run the world, but do you see yourself as a leader? I do. I absolutely do. I think I'm in a space of power and privilege because of my blog and the audience that I've built. And yeah, like people listen to me. So I do see myself as a leader. And who are your role models? My role models. Oh my gosh. Shonda Rhimes is one of them because she basically drop kicked the glass ceiling of Hollywood and Shonda Rhimes single-handedly opened up doors that said, Hey, black women can run television and do it successfully. Um, and also she's very committed to making sure that one, she shows the world as it really is in her shows but also she makes somebody else's path easier than hers was. Like she's absolutely one of those women who's like, you know what? I'm going to keep the door open because I have that power and I'm in the space to do it. So she's definitely one of my role models. Well, you Um, might be excited to know, or maybe you already know this, that on Amazon, when you click on your book, I'm judging you. It says frequently bought together. I'm judging you and year of yes by Shonda Rhimes. Absolutely. So people and really look to both of you um, for for guidance. It's great. Yeah, it's that that is the ultimate compliment too. When that ha- when I noticed that on my book thing, when I, honestly, uh, since my book has been available for pre order, they paired me and Shonda's book together. And have you so, met her? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you guys moderated. <laughs> oh my god, I end up moderating a panel with Shonda at the United States of Women Summit in. Um, in June, actually, wow. also. So we've met a couple of times. Um, she actually reads my work, which is 
I mean, incredible. Wow. So do you think about her when you're writing like, okay, I can't use this word because Shauna's reading it or I got to, I got to be funnier here because Shauna's reading it. No, I don't. Or, or Amy Poehler's that, reading it. No, I do not. I try not to do that because then it would just take me off my game. I just, <laughs> <laughs> it would just take me completely off my yeah. game. So I'm like, my God, is Shonda reading this right now? No, she actually, she like retweets my work from time to time too. And, um, it's incredible. Oh my gosh. I also understand that you've met Oprah and I have to ask everyone who's been on this podcast, who's met Oprah, what it was like, like in the moment, first impression. And I actually write for Oprah magazine. I'm hoping one day we, you know, she and I will meet. I'm fingers crossed. But in the meantime, I'm trying to live vicariously through people like you. So t- give me like, just give me the goods. So I met Oprah twice this year. What's interesting is over the years, though, me and Oprah have been in the room together at least 15 times. But I never attempted to meet her because I just I wanted the first time I met her to be the first time she for her to be like, oh, hey, lovey. And I should know who I am as opposed to like a drive by meeting. So in April, I met her at a brunch that she had for 100 people who she thinks are living their best lives. And uh, we got to watch her show Super Soul uh, Sunday. It was this room had like Ava DuVernay in it, in DRE, uh, Jesse Williams. It was just an incredible room. So I ended up meeting her there. But then we had a and then in June, her team had me come to L.A. to interview the cast of Greenleaf, her new show. Mm hmm. Um, on own. Yeah. And she was the first one I interviewed and I end up sitting down. I end up what? interviewing the best interviewer in the yeah. world. How, do you, how did you prepare interviewing Oprah? What was the first, my struggle is always the first question. What was the first question you had for Oprah? You know what? I can't remember. You blacked out. I, I cannot remember. I was just like, <laughs> great show. But during the interview, um, I was talking about her character on the show who wears this awesome Afro wig. And I was like, that hair is so dope. And she was like, thank you. And I was like, I actually just cut my hair six weeks ago. And, um, I had locks in the middle of my back and I cut it all the way down to where like, yeah, super short cut. And she turns to me and said, lovey, what's going on with you? And grabs my head. Oh my gosh. Did you throw up? I totally was like, oh, my God, Oprah is touching my head. I was feeling anointed in that moment. Okay, (laughs) like, oh, my gosh. And then she like after the interview, she gave me a hug and stroked my head some more. First of all, like hugging her is like hugging clouds. It's like the best hug ever. Hugging Oprah is like hugging clouds. You can't get enough. Best hug ever. Okay. so, yeah, it was awesome. Oh, Stedman's a lucky man. What can I say? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I want to talk about the Red Pump Project. This is a uh, your um, foundation, and um, it's a nonprofit. It raises awareness about the impact of HIV/AIDS on women and girls. And you uh, work on this along with uh, Karen Brianne Lee. Tell us about it and and how we can get involved. So I started this nonprofit with Karen seven years ago because we both know people who are infected and affected by AIDS. So I have a friend who has 20 cousins who are living with her grandmother because their parents died of um, AIDS-related complications in Malawi. And she has a friend who told her he was HIV positive. We wanted to do something around this because we both didn't realize how bad the epidemic was still affecting people because people stopped talking about it. So our thing is we wanted to 
talk to women because we realize that women are the ones who are always affected because we're the caretakers, even when we're not the ones living with it. So we decided to start as we, we just did a blogging campaign called Rock the Red Pump, where we asked our blogger friends that on March 10th, which is Girls AIDS Day, to talk about HIV and AIDS, no matter what it is they typically talk about. And that was March 2009. It was like seven days before girls, Women and Girls AIDS Day, and 135 people ended up joining us wow. to do it. It was like, whoa. And, you know, on that day, too, we asked, we were like, put on some red shoes. You know, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Let's normalize this conversation. And we did not expect 135 people, would, uh, bloggers would join us. And afterwards, people are like, so what's next? So that, that's when Red Pump became a national nonprofit. So now we do events around the country. We do workshops like cupcakes and condoms. We basically want to say, like, if you can talk about this epidemic on Facebook in a room full of strangers or, you know, while you're at a bar, you can talk about it to your partner. You can talk about it to your family members. Mm-hmm. So we still do our Rock the Red Pump campaign every year around March 10th. And we still wear our red shoes, our different events. And, um, yeah, we're excited to be a part of this conversation. That's like, okay, women look, okay. There's no shame in being sexual beings, but here's how you can protect yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you're living with the epidemic, you are not some type of leper. We are here for you. We are standing with you. And yeah. You mentioned earlier that charity, philanthropy, donating, volunteering, it shouldn't be an option. It should be an obligation. Where did you develop that mindset? How did you develop that mindset? Um, you know, it's funny. The last chapter of my book is called, is actually called do something that matters. And it's cause it's that important to me. I, I think I developed it for my mother, just watching her be somebody who's been selfless always. Um, has taught me that that's what you're supposed to do. Like she's, she would literally give her shirt off her back to somebody. Like I remember when I was young and sometimes we'll have visitors and somebody would be like, Oh my God, your shirt is amazing. My mom would go into the room and change it to a new shirt and hand hers over. (laughs) Um, and for me, I just feel like if everybody was committed to making sure we leave this world better than we found it, it would be a much better place than it is right now. Right. Um, some more money questions. And then I have a really fun round robin for us. Do you have a little bit more time? Absolutely. I got all okay. the time for you. I hope you're having fun. I am. I'm, I'm, t- I'm soaking it all in. Um, so we talk on the show about failure and I think it's important to experience that and, mo- you know, to understand what went wrong and hopefully that will be your lesson going forward in life. So when it comes to financial failure, Lovey, did you ever have a big moment of failure it didn't have it doesn't have to be big, but it was some significant enough where it made you stop in your tracks and change the way you either think about money or manage your money. Oh, absolutely. So being an entrepreneur is hard because that's also why I kind of fought this whole blogging thing to the nails for a long time. When I graduated from college uh, in 2006, I had a full time job doing marketing and digital strategy for nonprofits. And um I got laid off that job in 2010. That's when I finally did this whole blogging and digital strategy thing as an entrepreneur. I was basically pushed to take the leap of faith that I was going to take myself because I wanted my 
regular every two week paycheck. That's hard to give up. But when I lost that, I was kind of forced to face the music of maybe I should make this thing that has been such a hobby for me that I love my full time thing. But it was a struggle for a long time. Like I would still be looking for full time jobs because as an entrepreneur, nothing is set in stone. Where is your next check coming from? Invoices that are net 30 and net 60. You might be sitting around waiting for sometimes three months to be paid. So you have to manage your money very smart. Like if you have an influx of cash flow, you have to make sure you don't spend it all at once because when's the next time coming? So, you know, as a as somebody who owns her own business and works for herself, I'm constantly learning uh, lessons about money. One, like how to stand in your worth, how to make sure you're charging what you really deserve and making sure that people aren't taking advantage of you is a constant lesson. Did you learn the hard way about that? or uh, and, and so how do you know your worth? It's something that there's no other lovey. You know, you can't go on uh, payscale.com and go, how many other loveys make, you know, what are they doing? What are they, what kind of money do they make in order to have some kind of frame of reference? It's like you said, it's as an entrepreneur, it's, it's very hard to, to sort of get that context. So how do you educate yourself on that? So it's a matter of one, talking to people who are also in your industry. I am lucky enough to have a community of women who are also bloggers as my friends. So we can actually bounce real numbers off each other and say, hey, I got offered this campaign. This is what they're paying. Do you think this is fair? So having that is so invaluable because then a lot of times we're all working from different points of um, frames of reference. So you don't know that, oh, something that you just charged somebody a thousand for thousand dollars for somebody else is getting paid five thousand dollars for it. So a network is great. But two, also. Um, There are times when you'll settle for things that for less than you're worth because you're like, you know what, I'm going to do it. But then when you yourself feel taken advantage of when you're like, oh, my gosh, this just took me 30 hours to do and I'm only getting paid five hundred dollars for it. That would be a lesson for you for the next time to know that, okay, you shouldn't accept that. Right. Well, I haven't I have the privilege of working with an agent who helps me negotiate. And one of the things that we try to remind people when they say, okay, well, we just need you for an hour. What's, you know, okay, well, whether you need me for an hour or a day, you're not, it's, I don't, I don't see my work as being valued by the hour, right? My right. work is my work. My presence is my presence. There's value in that. And, and so, yes, of course, a one hour engagement is going to be a different price than like a three day engagement, but that's not the only variable. Right. We're supposed to use value based as opposed to hourly. We're not hourly workers. Right. So like it's like my name being attached to a campaign. What is the value of that? So that's important, too. And I think, you know, for women, especially women aren't taught to stand in our power. We're not taught to negotiate. We're just basically told, hey, here, take this. And, you know, there's something something like. Most women never negotiate the the first offers they're given. No, so, yeah. We leave a million yeah. dollars in lost wages on the table because we don't negotiate in the beginning of our careers. Oh my God. Fun fact. Yeah. Fun fact. Unfun fact. So I think it's really important for for us to really stand in this power and reclaim it. You know, like my sister, her last job 
when she accepted her offer, I was like, did you negotiate? She was like, no. I was like, you accepted the first offer? Yes. Why? Because she was afraid that if she negotiated, she would lose the Yeah. It's a big big myth. I don't know what keeps perpetuating that myth. I think it's just the stories in our head. It's the insecurity. We, like you said, though, you know, as women, as minorities, we have to work twice as hard to, to really claim our place. And I think with that comes the mindset maybe that I don't deserve to be here or I should just be happy to be here. Right. I should just be happy that they even want me in the room. But I think it's also, you know, society drilling it in our heads that we are not worth defending and we're not worth more. So I think it's a cultural thing and we kind of have to start early now, start talking to our girls mm-hmm. early about making sure that, so when it's time for them to get in the room, they're asking as exclamation points and not as question mark. Yeah. It's like, it's a difference between being like, how much do you charge? And you say $5,000 to Five thousand. Five thousand. There's. 5, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay. I know you're not really firm on this. Let me take advantage of that. Yeah. That's great advice. Okay, let's do some fun. Um, I don't know what you call this, but I thought it'd be cool because you you are you commentate so much on what's happening in culture and pop culture that I thought it'd be cool to get throw out some names or topics, and then whatever is the first thing that comes to mind, just. No filter. Okay. Just say it. Gotcha. Um, I hope I covered enough ground here, but I, I thought maybe we would start with uh, Donald Trump. Asshat. I hate him so much. <laughs> He's the worst. <laughs> like, he better not run this country. Oh my God. Do you have plans? What do you, what do you, what's your uh, exit strategy if, if Donald Trump you wins? No, I don't think I should have an exit strategy because those of us who have exit strategies are those of us who have the privilege to have exit strategies. We can't leave this country to burn as like the <laughs> who have no other choice. He's going to burn it no matter what. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, if, if he, I'm saying if he becomes president, there's like, we have no got to do everything in our power to yeah. make sure that's not. Well, that happening. is the thing, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of rhetoric like, Oh, I hope he doesn't win or he better not win. But it's like, where's, where's the actual movement towards like, we need to act now. Not, I mean, some people yes. are protesting, but I feel like there should be some, Something I don't know what it is. I'm not the expert, but I want to register to vote. Make sure your friends are registered to vote. Make sure that you can take the people who are older in your neighborhood to vote. We all have to pitch in. Yeah, that's right. Take your exactly. Bring your friends, your el- your neighbors, your elderly friends. Help them cross the street. Show them the directions. Get there together. Mm-hmm. All right. On the flip side, Hillary Clinton. Uh, one word. One word. Um, shoot, I don't know. That's hard. What's funny? I don't know. Hillary Clinton, I would say I'm with her. Okay, I'll use that as one word. Hashtag I'm with I'm her. I'm with her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oprah. Oh my God, I love her so much. She's everything. Um, That's not one word. But Oprah, I would say Oprah is purposeful. Purposeful. Yeah. Brexit. Ha! Disaster. Okay. Complete, utter disaster. Orange is the new black. I think I'm done with Orange is the new black. I think so too. Season four was so disheartening and dismaying that I have, 
I just don't know if I'm going to tune in for season five. It was too heavy. I couldn't. It was, you know, it was too heavy in a way that wasn't even, I'm used to heavy shows. Like I watch Game of Thrones. I yeah. watch House of Cards. I watch all type. But there was something about this season of, of, uh, of um, Orange the New Black that felt heartbreaking. Like it can't come back from it. Yeah, what are they gonna? I mean, really, it was so heartbreaking, and it was stomach wrenching, and it was horrifying and depressing. I mean, I, really, at the end, I was like, I felt so beaten up. Yes, me too. Yeah, you know, me too. Like, I was like, "Where's hope?" hope black is eyed, beaten up, stomach punched, no hope for the future. None, I mean, zero. Know, let's just burn everything to the ground. Basically, yep. So, um, but I'm probably still gonna watch season five. I mean, you got to at least give it a chance, right? Maybe. I can't. I can't promise that I will. I just have to. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Blogs. One word. Uh, <clears throat> necessary. Podcasts. Uh, NPR. Hmm. Okay. Snapchat. <sighs> Uh, inevitable. And I say that because I have fought being on Snapchat tooth and nails, but I'm going to have to be on it for my book tour. So, uh, yeah. What's dying in the world of social media? Do you think that like in 10 years, well, let's say, let's say Google plus, obviously, I mean, they already like closed that store, but, um, in a year, do you think we're going to see more or less people going to Twitter say no less, less people, um, Snapchat's going to be in the lead. Facebook is probably going to be flat, my guess is, or maybe a little more because Facebook Live's kind of exciting right now. It's like a, it's like a yep. reawakening. Yep. Um, what else? I, I mean, Periscope dead, right? I don't know if Periscope is dead. Um, it's definitely less uh, populated. I feel like Facebook Live basically took a bunch of its market share. Yeah. Okay. Last word. Adulting. Adulting is hard. (laughs) (laughs) But you're doing it so gracefully. And so thank you so much, lovey. Congratulations on your new book. It is called I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. I hope everybody goes pick it up. I think you will love it. And when you do pick it up, let me know your thoughts and use the hashtag I'm Judging You. I love it. Okay, lovey. Have a great and successful launch and hope to have you back you know, down the road, if you have time for us, little people over oh, here at oh, So Money. Oh, stop it. I know no little people. You and you of all people are definitely <laughs> not little people. You are giants. And thank you for having me. My honor. Thanks so much. Doesn't this just make you want to run out and buy her book? The book, again, is called I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual, Lovey Ajayi. Her website is awesomelylovey.com, and she's on Twitter at Lovey, L-U-V-V-I-E. Check out this transcript, the audio, leave a comment at somoneypodcast.com. And if you want to leave a question for me for the Friday episodes, just click on Ask Farnoosh. Boom, we're connected and we'll make some magic on the next Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh and hopefully you'll be featured. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.